Welcome to the first ever podcast. I am your host, Jeremy Bohm. And if this is your first time here, this is a show where I ask artists of all kinds about the first experiences in their art form that led them to where they are today. I am so excited that my guest this week is none other than Laura Jane Grace. I'm thrilled. I, uh, I'm, I'm a big Against Me fan. Uh, when I when Against Me first came into my life, I was at just, you know, the right age. I think it was around like 19 years old or something. And uh, I was just completely obsessed with reinventing Axl Rose and crime and acoustic. And then, of course, Ed's Eternal Cowboy, everything. I, I just I've found them so, so wonderful and uh, one of the best live bands around. Um, so it was exciting to, to get to talk to Laura. Um, what else? Oh, she has a tour. She just announced a tour in uh, Canada in March. She also has dates uh, during December, I think one or two, maybe in January. So hit up laurajanegrace.com to check that out. Uh, But before we get to that interview, let me pitch you the Patreon. If you hit up patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon right now, you can get a bonus episode where Laura Jane Grace answered the questions that were submitted by subscribers. How cool is that? If that's something that interests you going forward, you can subscribe for $10 a month and get the opportunity to submit questions to uh, upcoming guests, and you'll be the first to find out who's coming on. And um, I also do these radio episodes, so if you haven't checked those out, maybe do that. Um, it's just episodes where I uh, play music and I talk about music. They uh, they happen if you subscribe to Apple or Spotify. They happen twice a month, but if you subscribe to the Patreon, you get two bonus episodes of that. Plus, there's a Discord channel. We hang out on there, doing a Q&A soon. Um, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Hit up patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon. If you want to just support the show, you can uh, you can pay $3, get all that bonus content, or uh, 7 or 10 Whatever you feel like doing to support the show is greatly appreciated. But honestly, even just subscribing on Apple or Spotify, leaving a rating and review on Apple does a whole lot. That's my pitch. I want to tell you about my friends over at Discovered Magazine, who are our wonderful sponsor. They are an international print counterculture magazine encompassing the best of music, art, skateboarding, and anything with a punk ethos. Listeners can get 10% off a yearly subscription when they use the code FIRSTEVER, spelled out, when you hit up store.dscvrd.co. What else? I think that's it. Um, here's my conversation with the ever awesome Laura Jane Grace. Laura, thank you so much for making yourself available for this. I'm excited to talk to you. Thank you for having me, Jeremy. I'm finally I'm glad that we finally did get to connect. There's like a couple people that, you know, early on when I started doing this podcast that I hit up and then um, you know, one reason or another they couldn't, you know, maybe they were about to go on tour or they have something going on in their life and I'm like totally fine. I totally understand. I think like this this type of life um, makes you way more easy to just understand someone being like, I can't do this right now. You're like, of course, I, it's totally <laughs> cool. fine. You know, whereas, whereas like, I feel like maybe someone who just as a podcast or just as a, you know, someone who uh, a journalist or something like that maybe doesn't understand the no as easily, you know? I appreciate that actually. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that is good perspective on that. Cause I, you know, I feel like I am driven uh, by both equal parts Yes, I want to do this genuinely. And another part, 
I can't even look at my phone from existential dread. So it's hard for me to function in certain ways, you know, but yeah. So no, I, do that's you, part of being an artist, right? Absolutely. Did the, did the phone anxiety uh, ramp up in the last year or year and a half? Or has it always kind of been that way? It's been out of control. I mean, it's been, I've had phone anxiety for since, since we switched over to cell phones in a lot of ways. <laughs> But, yeah. um, you know, have gone through various stages where I've been like, I'll just have a flip phone for a while or I'll just get a I'm going to get a Blackberry again. I liked that better, you know, but uh, pandemic life for sure, you know, and especially. Um, you, yeah, just sometimes you, you get locked into to that loop of fucking like scrolling where it's just hitting all the right dopamine receptors. And that's the only fe thing that feels good in, in on some days, you know, and I hate it. Yeah, but, <laughs> it's uh we did a we did our last record um, with the producer Ross Robinson and and he would call it uh uh what was it um, pain mining because <laughs> obviously we know doom scrolling but like pain mining he was, I was just like yeah that's that's pretty true you know I it's I'm still a victim I'm sure you're a victim of it too where like you know you could see a bunch of positive stuff maybe being said about something that's posted but you always just hone in on like the one or two negative things and you're just like well my day's ruined. A hundred percent, a hundred percent, you know, and, um, yeah, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's tough. addictive. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I noticed when, are, are you a big movie person? Do you go out to the movies ever? I do. And actually have only recently started going again, which has been awesome. And I've really enjoyed it. I saw the new Ghostbusters the other day and saw the French dispatch. Um, and the French Dispatch was first movie back in like the theater that me and my daughter would go to every, you know, all the time here in Chicago. Um, and it's 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 cool being back in the theater. Um, and it's a different experience watching movies on like streaming services, Netflix and shit like that. I don't enjoy it as much, um, but I love going to the movies. Yeah, I uh, for I got to ask, did you, uh, did, you, did, you, did you weep at the end of Ghostbusters? I did. I couldn't help I, it. <laughs> I I never thought I would cry so hard to a movie that I was kind of indifferent about. <laughs> like, like the like the the lead like you know for listeners if you haven't seen it that's your fault. But like I'm not going to spoil too much. But like the lead up, I was like, yeah, this is definitely like for kids, and I and I appreciate you know the throwbacks and stuff. And I and I saw kids in my audience like very excited about it. So I was like, this is for them, not for me. But that last 25 minutes, I was. Yeah, <laughs> it was. Well, it, it does a good job of that, of like, it, you know, it is kind of its own thing. And I love Paul Rudd. I think Same. Paul Rudd's great. Um, but and, and this doesn't really give away the ending or anything, but seeing like the original cast members, you know, with their proton packs and everything, of course, that calls to your childhood and everything. But really, like, I found myself so vulnerable to crying at a lot of stuff like that recently where I'm just realizing really the passage of time, you know, and like being like, wow, you know, like the goal, the Ghostbusters are all grown up. Everyone's getting old, you know, like Charlie Watts passing, like hit me, you know, even watching, like I find myself crying on Instagram, just seeing pictures of the Rolling Stones playing shows right now. Where I'm like, just keep going guys. Let's yeah. do it effort. You know, all the fucking Beatles shit, all the fucking Paul McCartney stuff. Like it's, yeah. it's a strange time right now. Like we're all in this weird limbo zone passing from one thing to the next. And it's really lining up with also, also cultural things that are changing in, in ways, pop culture things uh, that have always been kind of just like 
omnipresent. Like, I think that even like throws to a quote Keith Richards had one time of like, for you, there has always been the Rolling Stones or the, for you, there has always been the sun, the moon and the Rolling Stones. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I feel like there's only a handful of people who can get away with that quote. And that's uh, he's, he's one of them. Keith Richards <laughs> is definitely one of them. Yeah. <laughs> um, but and just real quick, did you enjoy the French Dispatch? I wanted to enjoy the French Dispatch more than I, I actually enjoyed the French Dispatch. But that being said, it was on my birthday, so I really enjoyed going to it. But I, you know, I, I enjoyed the fucking 10 minute nap I had in the middle of it where I was just like, I don't know. It's it's become too flourished and too nuanced. And the story is not as upfront and center as it was in pe- previous Wes Anderson movies, in my opinion. But also that being said. Uh, a lot of times with Wes Anderson movies, I find that I have to watch them a couple of times before I, I fully digest it. But also there are some that are way fucking more immediate that I like better. So you, you took the words right out of my mouth. That's exactly how I felt. I, I feel like for the first time, I, I feel like Wes Anderson, for all his Wes Anderson-isms, has done a really good job of speaking to his audience on his level. This was the first time where I felt like he was kind of talking over his audience, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. And I'm sure he really enjoyed making it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it was, it's for him, maybe. Totally. You know? The first story and the third story I enjoyed. The second one was was like so confusing and quick. And I was like, I, I don't know that I'm following this, but I'm with you. Maybe on rewatch, I'll enjoy it more. Yeah. And it's just, it was like, it was a lot of cool shots, you know? Anyway. It looked great. I mean, you it can always rely on that. Looked cool, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, uh, I always like to, one of the, whenever I have a musician on, the first question that I usually ask them is, uh, do you remember when you were young, the first time that you connected with something musically? Like, uh, a lot of times people will maybe throw back to things that their parents were listening to and like you enjoyed that, but, and that's fine. I love that answer as well. But I, I think I get more of a kick out of like the time that you discovered something on your own and was like, oh, and like maybe your parents didn't connect with it. And it was like for you. Um, yeah, I can speak to all of those early memories of like, I guess my my first impression musically was more even attached to a piece of gear than it was to an actual whatever it was actually being listened on like I my dad had an eight track player and he had a reel to reel setup and like I remember his headphone jack the headphone jack was like uh I, I always get it mixed up is it quarter inch or eighth inch it's the bigger one you know which means that it's better sound quality it's right. this one right so I remember that and I remember the headphones being on my ears and they had like the big couch cushion like uh suction cup things around them and and I remember the fidelity of the audio and being like there is a warmth here, a world that I'm just like falling into. And that was even with headphones, a private experience, you know, Uh, but I couldn't tell you what I was listening to at that point. And I remember, you know, the first things my parents listened to that left definitive impressions on me, uh, Tracy Chapman with my mom and uh, like Willie Nelson, probably with my dad, like early country stuff that he was listening to. Um, But I guess like the first time on my own, I really connected with something. It was undeniably Tom Petty's Full Moon Fever, which was just the, f- well, it was, I, I think that was the most impressionistic. Yeah, it was either that or Def Leppard Hysteria, which was my first cassette. <laughs> and again, like on a Walkman headphones, private experience. But 
I really feel like more strongly attached to Tom Petty's Full Moon Fever and the impact that that had on my life in ways that never could have been predicted from the time. Um, but that was the CD or the record that like, you know, I danced to in front of my bedroom mirror, strumming along to a tennis racket and just yeah. like have every song fully hit me. And I understood it in a different way than pour some sugar on me. <laughs> <laughs> um, is that the is that the album that's like uh, it has like the rectangle in the middle? um that it's like kind of like a not quite rainbow but it's like pinkish or whatever is that, is that, that is. album yeah. yeah it is and i guess you know that and i didn't even hit me till years later but that that album cover is a throw to some kind of like poster style that is done at some venue i think in california like there's show posters that were done in that style and that's what he was trying to emulate with that album cover right you know it's not like uh What's the one? It's not the Fillmore, but it's some other place, probably some place in L.A. or something. I think like. it's the Palladium. OK, yeah. yeah, yeah, I think you're right, actually. Yeah. So it's the Palladium style concert posters is the album cover. But that was something I had fucking no idea as an eight year old living in fucking <laughs> Naples, Italy, listening to Tom Petty on on CD in my bedroom, you know. But how was I to know then at that time in, that I one day I'd, I'd fucking play the Palladium, you know, like right. or that I'd live in Gainesville or that, you know, my first electric guitar years later would be a traveling Wilburys model electric guitar. These were things that my dad kind of steered me towards, you know, he was the one who got me the Tom Petty CD. He was the one who gave me the electric guitar and then circumstance and chance led to Gainesville and stuff, you know? Right. I know you were, you, you know, a, you're, you're a product of, of, uh, of moving around because of the army background that your, your, your pops had. Um, kind of a funny question. Cause I, I know you've, you've spoken on moving around a bunch as a kid. Did you have like a favorite place that you were in for a moment? Like, and it seems like you were in Naples, Italy, probably the longest, right? Is that fair to say? Yeah, and that, and also for the longest period of time while I was able or like consciously able Con to remember. Okay, you know, like um, sure. I, I still feel emotionally and mentally connected to the person I was then, as opposed to like. I don't really know who I was when I was three, <laughs> you know, like I have some memories maybe from sure. three and four, but you know, we, different person then, let's just say. Totally. Uh, <laughs> what? So did you go and you went from Naples, Florida to, I mean, sorry, Naples, Italy to Naples, Florida. Yeah. And again, just chance where, uh, was living in Naples, Italy, because that's where my father was stationed, working for the army, worked for NATO. And then when my parents divorced, my grandmother had retired in Naples, Florida, because that's where grandparents retire. And so we moved in with my grandmother in Naples, Naples, Florida. Was your young brain slightly confused by that? You're like, wait, but there's like one there too. Like, it just it's, it seems just of all the chance. That's very totally, totally. But it, then it's also confusing too. And it, I hate that fucking Americans do this. And I don't know what the root of it is, but it's like, you know, it's Napoli, right? That's the name of it in fucking Italy. It's Napoli. No one calls it fucking Naples if you're Italian, right? <laughs> right. The audacity of Americans to be there occupying the land with a military presence to be like, you're Naples. <laughs> and, and then, I, I, you know, I don't know what the connection is to why Naples, Florida is called Naples, Florida. Like, right. it was an homage to fucking Naples, Italy. Maybe call it Napoli, you know? Right, but, right, um, right. And this is this. And because of that mindset, I literally had no idea it was Napoli. Italy so there you go right I'm, right yeah but but and who the fuck else does that you know right yeah other than maybe uh Massachusetts with how they pronounce things you know that's that's like a whole other <laughs> that's a whole other conversation true 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 <laughs> um 
So, because yeah, when I was when I was doing like a, a bit of research here, I was actually curious because I saw that like in in the in the write up that I saw that uh, you got your first guitar from like a, a Sears catalog. But was that actually while you were in Italy? It was while I was in Italy. It was <laughs> just I was like, ten then. Yeah, eight or eight or like around eight or nine or ten was when it <laughs> somewhere in there. Like, yeah. So like, I guess just. I'm like, I had no idea that you could have something delivered to Italy from Sears. Like that just sounds crazy to me. Yeah. Well, the, you know, it took extra long time. There was like a delay in information getting to Italy, even sure. with, you know, there was one American television station called AFN, um, Armed Forces Networks, and it didn't have any commercials that sold you anything product wise, but it had safety commercials in between all the shows and everything, you know, like, okay. Uh, like anti-DOI stuff or like, you know, home safety shit or whatever. Um, but all the TV shows were like a year to two years behind in programming. Um, and then similarly, it, it wasn't like, you know, now if you lived in Italy and you were to order something off of the internet, it would be more of a direction, direct connection to that company sending you something where this was like ordering something through a Sears catalog through the military that then would be shipped through military channels to you over there. So it right. took like two months or something like that to receive it. But it was old school, you know, Sears catalog where you flip through it and it was a Harmony guitar and it was like a hundred bucks and it was a total piece of shit. And I tell this to people all the time when they're like getting their kids their first guitars where it's like, get them a nicer guitar when you're younger and the action on a guitar is like basically more suitable for archery your fingers don't have any muscles they don't have any calluses you can't play that it's torture but there was a, like an army wife who gave lessons and i i started taking lessons from from them and it wasn't anything i was interested in learning so it, it didn't stick until i was able to like make the leap to figuring out how to learn the songs i wanted to play you know like i didn't want to fucking play ode to joy and shit like that right right i love the archery analogy that's so perfect <laughs> like uh i I we had like I mean it practically was probably a toy but like this acoustic 100%. guitar that was given to to me from from my parents when I was yeah like probably you know six or seven or something that I was just excited to hold like there's a really funny picture of me in like a Nintendo long sleeve holding this thing but even to this day I also had like really bad eczema as a kid so like on my fingers so like the idea of pushing down on that was just impossible i thought guitar was impossible until i you know played a friend's like squire strat in junior high or something yeah yeah it's a perfect way to look at it i agree um do you remember what because uh, you had just said that like you took lessons and it wasn't really for you was it because uh were you also being asked to like learn how to like read music or anything like that or it was reading music and i I'm better at like, I can hear something and I can reproduce it, you know, but like something like the understanding, the mechanics of like, if a note is connected like this, it means you should play it like this is, is hard for me to, to get, let alone, um, you know, if this circles here, this corresponds to this, this finger right. here, like, I don't know, may, maybe if, it just wasn't interesting enough that it engaged me because I didn't see the connection from how to get from what they were telling me to what I actually was interested in musically. Like, um, and I didn't know how to verbalize any of that, you know, that that was my aim of like, Hey, I want to rock. <laughs> <You know>? like, <laughs> like, excuse me, excuse me, ma'am, ma'am. I'm, I would like to rock, please. Uh, uh, so when it came back around, um, <clears throat> You, uh, I think I said like it was probably like junior high-ish when, it, when uh, you started playing again. Yeah, well, 
when my parents divorced then I was like 12, like fifth grade. And I think it was that Christmas that my dad got me my first electric guitar, which was a traveling Wilburys model electric guitar. And the guitar is pretty cool, actually. You can find them on eBay or Reverb still. They're like painted all white and like neon green and pink and weird. And it's kind of a Les Paul body shape, but it's a smaller scale electric guitar. And again, the action on it is merciless. You know, it's just <laughs> brutal. And I'm sure the strings were not nice strings or anything like that. So it didn't, and it had trouble staying in tune, you know, so it wasn't an enjoyable guitar to play either. But that was my first electric guitar. And I remember I got a, a PV Rage 58 or whatever. Uh, at, or first I got a pig nose a- a amplifier actually. And then I got a PV Rage 58 or whatever. So those are my first amps. Um, but you know, with those amps, it was immediately realized when trying to play with a drummer of like, oh, these amps aren't loud enough loud to enough. Be drums, you right. know, you can't fucking compete. Uh, so there, there, there was the problem there, but started in my head making bands before I was actually playing in bands. Like I'd imagine them. And then the friend group that I met at my church youth group, like we had imaginary bands before it actualized into actually us getting together and playing and figuring out how to do it, you know? That's that's the most it's like the exact junior high mindset. I completely relate where you're like, you just have your friends. You're like, okay, so you're going to get drunk. You're going to ask your parents for drums this Christmas. (laughs) And we're going to be like you you name your band before you even know what you're doing. Exactly. Yeah, I was I was already thinking, like, what should the logo be before (laughs) before figuring out the logistics of like, where are we going to practice or should we learn to play? You know, it was total wild stallions, Bill and Ted's excellent adventure shit, you know, camera or something like that, dancing around in front of it. Um, That's yeah, that's that's exactly what it is. Do you uh, do you remember the first song that you like you learned how to like you maybe figured out or learned how to play that you were like, oh, like. I can actually do this. Um, well, I talked about this recently in the Amazon thing that I did, the Audible series of the first song. I, I still remember how to play the first song I ever wrote, and it was a song about Ariel from The Little Mermaid, just because... You know, the, we were practicing in an outdoor band shell and there was a little kid there and we, we were like realized we needed to write a song and we're like, what should we write a song about? And the little girl was like, Ariel, <laughs> the little mermaid shirt on. So we wrote a song about it there on the spot. Um, but honestly, I guess the first songs that I really learned how to play on my own uh, were, were fucking Nirvana songs, you know, yeah. Nirvana and Pearl Jam songs. Um, uh and probably, you know, Smells Like Teen Spirit and Come As You Are, uh, those those riffs were the easiest for me to learn as a kid. Absolutely. Yeah, you you and I are in the same age group. Like, uh, I'm 38. So, like, I know we're pretty close, and I'm, I'm in the same boat. I've been doing the show. I've been interviewing, you know, people that are a little bit younger than us, and I'm always – it's just so funny how – the next generation i realized doing the show is like seven nation army like that's like that's their smells like teen spirit which is so wild to me but once you learn that power chord it's just so exciting to be like oh my god the whole world is now opened up to actually the music that i like right right well i remember too though the first time i learned the concept of a power chord was watching my friend dustin play iron man um because he like he got an Ibanez and I remember looking at like the Floyd Rose tremolo system and being like, what the fuck, fuck is that? <laughs> you know, right. like the shooting machines and everything. Um, but he, his parents got him lessons at like a music store, uh, in Golden Gate in Golden Gate, Florida. And, uh, 
and he learned Iron Man, and that was the first time I saw anyone play power chords. And then that that was how I made the jump in my head of like, oh, that's how they're doing Smells Like Teen Spirit. That's the fucking formation. And then once I got the formation, I by ear could put it together, you know? Right. Oh, yeah, completely. I, I don't know if you ever, in, if you were ever like interested in, in much metal or anything like that when you were young, aside from Def Leppard. But um, <laughs> I remember going from learning the power chord and then realizing that if I just tune that first string down a little bit and you just do a bar chord i'm like it gets easier it gets even <laughs> easier <laughs> like i could just do this and then i from then on my musical ability just regressed completely i was just like i'm not interested in learning anymore i can just do bar chords <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah i couldn't well i I wasn't that into metal like and right. I feel like that there's a couple split points in music that I could see really early on of like and and for most people it's like you either like the Beatles or the Rolling Stones but for me it was like you like the Beatles or you like uh the Doors and I was like I like the Doors my friend likes the Beatles and then it was like you either like Pearl Jam or you like Nirvana they like Pearl Jam I like Nirvana you know like <laughs> oh and then there was a. Uh, Guns and Roses and Metallica. And Metallica was, if I would have chose the Metallica way, I would have been got into more of the metal and probably learned more of that style on the guitar. But I was like, I like Guns and Roses. Um, right. And, and I just was never shredded and I, I, never sh I never was focused on learning how to solo or anything like that. And really early on, I felt like to this limit with chords of like, how do I get past this? Like, okay, these are the chords that I can learn. I have to invent my own chords, you know, like in order to be original or, or just to have my own sound, I've, I've got to figure out my own way to do it. So I was kind of like minorly obsessed with that, um, that in a way hindered me from actually learning the things that I should have been learning because you can only play these chords because these are the only chords there are. There is a yeah. definitive amount, but anyway. No, I, that makes total sense. I, I've, I've said something sort of similar, if, even a few times on the show where I was like, I always feel like there's the kids that, uh learn power chords and that's what they stick with and they're still probably as talented on guitar as they are today as they were then and but that but they're writing cool punk songs and great or there's the people that started getting into metallica and pantera and they learned how to solo and those people can shred like hell right still you know right, right. but then i also had another split point at like 13, 14, where because of my friend group, like I started with one friend group, the church friend group, and formed my first bands, and then I first band, and then I got kicked out of that band and had to form a different friend group and start another band. And when that was the case, I switched to bass. So I, I started approaching playing in a different way, especially with singing. Like you have to sing a different way if you're if you're playing bass. And I know that had like a specific influence on the way then I approached guitar, even once I switched back to guitar. Uh, do you mind expanding that on on that a little bit? I'm actually curious. I've never heard anyone say that before. Um, yeah, like even even now with songs that I've written on guitar, it's interesting. Anytime I've gone and tried to play bass with them, like I can't play what the bass line that's been you know recorded with it while singing it like whatever coordination in my head wherever the notes are hitting isn't quite right. But like with guitar, then switching to it. Um, even initially with early against me stuff, I approached, uh, m my aim was always connecting with the drummer in the way that a rhythm player should connect with the drummer, which then kind of just directed me to being a rhythm guitar player. And then that's where more of my natural uh, talent is or whatever. Um, 
and and approaching it specifically with the acoustic guitar when you're doing it on your own and there is no a percussion accompaniment your job is to make the acoustic guitar also then the percussion um where you're kind of trying to do the 16th on the guitar or you're trying to kind of hit where with the which is what the bass would be doing with the kick drum you're locking in with the kick drum um so that just like really directed way then that i would write songs and approach it you know oh that's so interesting yeah that's uh I, and even just you describing that i can it kind of it makes sense in, a, in an interesting way um i was probably going to wait to mention this uh, a little later but one of my things that i've always been really taken back by with your songwriting in particular as a lyricist is how rarely you rhyme and I'm curious and I'm curious and I think I, you know, it's one of those things where you've, you've had this ability to write some of the, you know, the catchiest songs, songs that you know so well with like almost anti hooks, but they're hooks, if that makes sense. And, and like, I can't point to another songwriter that has done that, that, st that sticks out in my, in my head. And I'm curious if, if that was like a thing that you purposely was like, I don't, want to focus on rhyming as much or if it just comes naturally that way it was something that i obstinately was focused on not doing you know where i was like i do not want to rhyme definitely at first um and but because it always felt like a cop-out or something of like that's the obviously thing that you could do and i feel like whenever i see really lazy lyrics that rhyme there's like nothing more distasteful or more of a turnoff for me and it's just like those lyrics fucking suck that's obvious you know like so to me again then talking about where you know realizing eventually of like you're limited with your instrument and in that all the chords have already been played all the chord structures have already been played you know like and then making the flip to like, well, there is actually no shame in that, you know, maybe actually it should be a question of like, how many times can you actually write a song using uh, G, C and D and that that's where maybe the talent should lie, but that where the opportunity to do something interesting actually then relies on the lyrics and what you're saying. So my focus has always just kind of been there and letting that steer the song for better or worse. Um, and then approaching lyric writing in a way where having to trick your brain into not being aware that you're trying to write lyrics. Cause anytime I've always, anytime I try to do something where I'm purposely trying to do it, I, I have trouble doing it, you know? So writing to just write, this is the, I got to write, I got to free form, write and not think about what I'm saying. So if I'm not thinking about what I'm saying, I'm not trying to come up with the rhymes. And then after I get it out, you go back and you carve it up and you figure out what the lyrics are. Um, that influences, but, but it, you know, it wasn't until like recently, even that I kind of decoded songwriting or lyric writing in a way of realizing like, oh, you can go back and revise if you, if you like something, but don't want to change the nature of the way it's hitting or where the hook is by just being aware of how many consonants there are or the cadence in the way of like, a lot of the times lyric writing is like a formation of seven nine seven or nine eleven nine eleven <laughs> not to throw to any conspiracy theorists <laughs> uh, just like you'll say something that's like uh i am having fun podcasting that's eight okay uh fuck this is a terrible example no fuck. no 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 passion and burning but then you know as long as you fill in a line that has that same eight consonants then it'll fit in a in a in a in a bar or whatever and it right. won't change the flow if you stumbled on a flow that you like right uh 
I struggle with this often when it comes to end up ending up performing some songs when it comes to something I feel like we're on the same page here but like I'll have times where um I don't know if it's maybe a little bit laziness on my part or or whatever but where you know I'll I'll have verse verse a verse and then you know like first verse and second verse and it'll be you know same uh same amount of um syllables and all that sort of stuff but then like I'll change the last line or the, th- you know, the, or I'll change the second line and the fourth line of, you know, make those different, but the first lines are always, and then when it comes to performing, I'm like, my brain goes, I don't remember which one was first. I don't remember <laughs> like, 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 and I, and there's like a few songs that I struggle with so bad to where it's like, uh, you know, I get in the spot and we're playing and I'm like, Oh fuck. Like I, I don't remember which one is the third line or the fourth, you know, has that ever happened with you? It does. Yeah. Yeah. And more and more recently, too, as I've gotten older, I guess, <laughs> you know, maybe that's, uh, I guess, part of getting old. Um, right. But to, to, to go back to the rhyming thing for two seconds. To, yeah, to, please. Like, um, you know, I uh, Eminem, I feel like put it kind of a, a, a cool way and the way they approach rhyming of like bending words. I've always appreciated that. And uh, and like I've, I seek ways to do that similarly of like even, you know, I have a song on that record I put out last year of rhyming mandarin with tangerine (laughs) so mandarin (laughs) and tangerine and of just like the way you say stuff sometimes like can 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 warp it to where it it doesn't rhyme but it's it scratches the same itch mentally for me right oh um yeah it's very fast that's very fascinating uh real i'm actually curious what about the guitar that you mentioned a little bit ago do you still have that guitar the The traveling wilbur's i don't i was like I, i i decided at some point that I was going to sand it and repaint it. Something. <laughs> uh, so I took it completely apart, sanded it, and then never repainted it. And who knows what happened to it. Fair. Fair. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's, uh, finding the, looking at those gems is sometimes nice, but then sometimes it's like, what am I going to do with that thing? It's just, it's, <laughs> I mean, I know it's important to me in my life story, but like, what am I going to do with that thing? But, um, yeah, yeah it probably, I, I think it goes for a fair bit on eBay, which, oh, sucks, nice. But, yeah. Yeah. Maybe you shouldn't have sanded it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, has your daughter shown any interest in uh in playing music? Um, my daughter plays cello and she's really good at it. Um no does way. takes lessons, like does that at orchestra in school and then takes after school lessons as well and has been at it for a couple years. And I'm so proud, like the other day I actually had a moment where um I forget what song they were showing me, but like called me into the room. And we were talking about it and they, they picked it out by ear, you know, they immediately like just played it. And I was like, fuck, you have the ability. There it is. Like you can pick it out by ear and your rhythm was good. Like no bullshit. It was fucking rad, you know? Oh, that's awesome. That's that. Yeah. That's, that's exciting. Um, so you mentioned your first, you know, you mentioned your first bands, um, with those first bands, were you always thinking that you wanted to be the singer? I wasn't dead set on being the singer, no. And I, I wasn't the singer in my first band. I was the backup singer, <laughs> like uh, rhythm guitarist more so, because the, the, the RJ, uh, who plays in a band now called Essential Machine, and they're rad, and they're in Pittsburgh. Um, okay. We were in a band together, and um, and they were the lead singer, and they were the lead guitar player, and their brother Nick was the drummer, and uh, our friend Sean played bass, and our other friend Corey played guitar, and I played guitar, which is way too many guitars in a band. But hey, we wanted everyone to be included. Right. Uh, <laughs> but 
uh, I was like, I played a telly, which is not the, you know, lead guitar instrument. Uh, they played a Stratocaster, which was more the lead. Um, the two combinations of that, that's too much high end, but anyways, <laughs> on, the, on the Les Paul. Um, but, but then once I switched over too and was playing bass, it was like a co-singing setup. It was, cause I guess, you know, the relationship I've always sought in bands is I always did want that, like, um, the duo. I wanted to be in a band where I could be Slash and fucking Axel or fucking Keith and fucking uh, Mick or whoever, you know, like the the team. Yeah, every every band at the time I felt like had that that popular dynamic, even like Aerosmith, Steven Tyler and Joe Perry, the Toxic right. Twins, you know, like <laughs> right. that dynamic, that kind of mythology um, yeah. I, I was really into. And um, that's what I... I sought out. Um, so like then my, my first punk bands, it was me and my friend Dustin and Dustin played guitar and he would sing and I would play bass and I would sing, but I always was really pushing for songwriting and really like, um, pushing for, for originals and stuff. And, um, I hopefully didn't hinder someone else's ability to do that, but it definitely then it would end up overshadowing other people's like want for that to the point where I became the front person. Right. Right. Um, and did any of those bands, uh, those early bands, did you ever, did any of those bands record? Yeah. Um, well, there's some VHS recordings of my first band, the church group band, the black shadows. Um, and, and I have a, a, a community fair recording of us playing porch by, uh, Pearl jam. Jam. And, um, it's totally embarrassing, but it, it is. <laughs> uh, and then my my first punk bands, I, I have like boxes and boxes of four track recordings. And actually, recently tracked down. I, I had my original four track cassette recorders, and I tracked down two more models of the same exact type that I could send off. So those those which are both also broken could be mined for parts to hopefully Frankenstein together one that I can take all the four track tapes and and mix them down just to have them because they're all at the age now of like they probably got one or two more plays in them and the tapes are going to start snapping they're like 25 30 year old tapes you know right um so that's that's currently a thing that i've been working on but yeah i have tapes starting in like 1993 1994 of my my band just like four track recordings did you did you buy the the four track recording machine or was that like a friend that had it or and and those things always seem so confusing to me as as a kid learning how to learning how to you know, do different tracks and stuff. Like, was that a hard process for you to learn? It was, it was really hard. And I only became so adept. And a lot of the things that I became good at were accidental. Uh, but my mom got it for me. And I don't remember if it was for a birthday or for Christmas, but I was 13. Uh, and I could never figure out bouncing, uh, how to bounce a track over. So it was always just limited to the four tracks, you know? Uh, and my thing was always like, turn down the bass all the way, turn the treble all the way up and fucking max out those channels so they're completely <laughs> red. Right. And then back down from there until it kind of sounds good. But I didn't know shit about sound deflection or absorption or that the problem actually was a lot of the spaces we were recorded on sounded like shit and the microphones we were recording with were shitty microphones. Um, but but the the piece of equipment itself i i felt like there were even now i'm like there was something really special to those preamps and the crispness that they had in the high end so even if the four track can't be re- fixed i i almost want to find a way to take the channels and and have them put into a unit where i could still use the channels to mess around with um but the compression of the tape too had its own magic and made some cool stuff you know that that that's where i started from right for sure did uh 
I, I saw that like the first show that you played was like a talent. Was it, is it true that it was like a talent show? You maybe did like Nirvana and Pearl Jam covers. Is that is that true? First first proper show or well not proper shows. Yeah, it was it was talent shows, uh, church yeah. talent shows, and the order was the first time was uh, an acapella rendition of Bohemian Rhapsody. Totally embarrassing. Sitting backwards on chairs with backwards hats on, no less. The second was <laughs> uh, a fucking a actual band performance of John Lennon's Imagine. All of us still sitting down, but I, I played my traveling Wilburys guitar for that, and there is video of that somewhere still. Um, but that was with an actual drummer, bass player, everything like that. Church yeah. talent again and then the next year was heart-shaped box and we were all standing up for that and we got asked to not play anymore for that but also i should be fully fucking honest and transparent in that somewhere in there fifth grade specifically uh i did do a uh, uh, summer camp talent show performance of lip syncing and playing air guitar along to the red hot chili peppers under the bridge and i want that counted as a first performance this is a safe space this is okay this we can I'm okay, I'm okay with that. Uh, the the first talent show I played, I dressed in an Adidas drum jumpsuit and uh, did a corn cover. So there you go. You win. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, <clears throat> my God, that's so good. Um, and then, but then once, do you remember what the first like? Uh, you have a band, maybe you have original songs, and now you're playing your original songs. Like, what kind of shows those were? Yeah. So this was probably eighth grade freshman year. And my first punk band, which was me and Dustin Fridkin and our friend Judson White, he played drums and it was a percussion plus, plus drum set. Uh, I don't, the order's getting a little hazy, but sure. we started out as the Snot Rockets. And then I think we were Ginks, G-I-N-X. And then we became uh, Upper Crust, but then discovered there was already a band called Upper Crust. So then we became the Adversaries. That's where we landed, the Adversaries. Sure. Uh, so I don't remember what the name was at the time. I think it was maybe Ginks. Could have still been Snot Rockets, but we 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 had like played a couple. We, we had been practicing for a while at Dustin's house because his parents had an at a basement in florida which is an actual fucking rarity because the water level's too high but he had a basement um and we had been practicing for a while and we like we realized like okay we got to play a show so we somehow got it into our head that we would rent out the trains the old train station where they had like banquet events in florida which is like so fucking hoity-toity and fucking like uh meant for you know senior citizens and no business having any kind of young punk show happening there but we we knew it could be rented uh but so that was where our minds started realized it was impossible really quick and then convinced dustin's parents to let us just have a show in the basement there so it was in dustin's parents basement and um just like made a flyer and passed it out at school i don't think we charged anything but it was like on a friday night probably and and you know maybe 25 kids showed up and we had a show and it was awesome it fucking ruled so it sounds like it, it, it definitely by eighth grade you had found punk and you were playing punk music and you certainly had punk band sounding names uh, you know and so like uh, did you find a scene or were you at the age where you were kind of creating your own scene because you didn't know other people who were involved yet we were primarily left to create our own scene uh specifically more so 
because Southwest Florida is fucking isolated and in a pre-internet age, and I hate to be that person being like before the fucking internet or whatever, but there wasn't like, there was not an older scene there. There's not any kind of history of venues in Naples, Florida. You know, it's not like, oh, well, back in the seventies, this was happening here. There wasn't shit happening there, you know? So there was, there weren't older kids to look for, even for fashion cues. And then there wasn't a lot of access to like, even, you know, pictures and books or magazines to look to of like, oh, this is how a punk's supposed to dress. So a lot of it was what you saw on MTV and then like the scraps of pictures that you could find in in magazines or whatever, um, which left you to invent your own version of it. And the scene was so diverse because of it. And and it was based on like, you know, you you hung out with a certain group of kids at lunch at your school, the freaks, right? The freaks and the geeks. And, you know, there'd be the kid who was really into like um, Marilyn Manson and Ozzy Osbourne and they had their hair dyed black and the sides side shaved and it, it pulled back into a really tight ponytail, you know? Oh, yeah. And they'd wear eyeliner and red lipstick. And then there'd be uh, the really arty kids who like were quiet and didn't really participate in the group, but they were there, you know, or there's the one guy who's like got the weird jean jacket with tassels on it, who gets you stoned every day after school. Or there's your friend who like has a Ford Explorer who you get high with and ride around listening to the dead Kennedys while they put your life in danger, jumping bridges, you know, like just a weird cast of characters who all kind of added their own thing and had their own musical direction they were coming from. Um, and you picked what you want from that. But for punks, there was just nothing and no punk shows happened there. The nearest punk shows were happening in Fort Myers, like which was half an hour, 45 minutes away, but inaccessible when you don't have a car or then St. Pete, um, which was like two hours away, St. Pete, Tampa area. And it wasn't until a while till we got access to be able to go up to actual punk shows. So you just had to invent your own version of it. Do you remember what it was like when you first got to go to a, a show that was like not one that you created for yourself like oh shit this is like I, I feel like i belong here was there ever did you ever have that moment well there was you know I, i've i've talked about seeing Gr green day was my first show and i've talked a lot about that and the experiences around that but that was that was a bigger show you know that was at a venue called the edge in orlando and it was an outdoor show in a field so it was different in that it wasn't in a venue, you know, that's an sure. experience and it wasn't at night. It was during the day. Um, so there was this place called the refuge in St. Petersburg, Florida. There was somehow Christian church affiliated, but at the same time was a genuinely seedy club and and actual punk shows that didn't have anything to do with Christianity or the church would happen there. It was just, they, they let shit happen there. And I remember my like convincing my mom that it'd be okay to drive me to St. Pete and drop me off there with, with James and my other friends. Uh, but they went along with that and, and I did. And that was the first time I remember being at a show at night and that sense of danger um, and realizing like that I was in a totally different world. And I don't remember what the show was specifically. And it wasn't a big show that it was like a, you know, maybe a, a 20 people show or something like that. But, yeah. Like local bands potentially or something. Yeah, local St. Pete bands, maybe Car Bomb Driver. That was a a, a, a St. Pete band or whatever. Um, yeah, something like that. Um, and how soon after that did the idea for Against Me start? Because the first cassette is like '98, and you were probably you were a teenager for sure, right? Yeah, yeah. 
I was 17 for when I did the first cassette. So it, you know, at the time it seemed like it was ages between um, that moment and then, but realistically it was like two or three years. Right. That moment. And then, yeah, it's the more, the more I do the show and the more just like talking to people and, and just like looking back at history and also just doing research on people and stuff like it's, it's really mind boggling how quickly things seem to have happened 20 years ago or, you know, 15 years ago, even. And then, and now things feel to go at such a slower pace. I mean, even when I was just, I mean, we'll talk a little bit about it, but just like looking through your releases and and discographies and stuff, like how many things were just like one year after the other. And now we're so used to this day and age where you put out a record and then you like tour on it for three years or four years or whatever it is, you know, like that seems like the norm now. Um, But yeah, exactly. But then exactly. It's like, you think you're like, oh yeah, I guess if the first cassette was 98 and then that 12 inch, um, the self-titled 12 inch was like 2000. And then from there it was like against me was off and running. Right. Yeah. And, and it seems, I hate the way time moves now. You know, I, I feel like maybe that's a little part of getting older, but I, I, I think a lot of it has to do with social media. A lot of it has to do with cell phone addiction stuff, but it feels like there's just not enough hours in the day. And it feels like the months are flying by and I, it feels like there's not as much happening in between, but that back then totally I guess, right. But back then it felt like that time was moving so slow and nothing was happening, but at the same time, monumental things were happening. Right. Yeah, truthfully. Um, but, uh, but yeah, y- you know, like there was a lot of steps in between, but, but, uh, but the, that was the order. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So, no, you're fine. yeah more caffeine needed. <laughs> <laughs> so the, uh, so I saw that that cassette came out on uh misanthrope, which was also a zine that you did, right? Yeah, I started doing the Zine Misanthrope probably when I was fourteen. Okay, and what was like? What was uh, I? I read that you had done interviews and things like that. But was when you started that Zine, was there a focus? Were you like, was it like, uh, like album reviews? Was it like just you kind of venting about things? Was it what? Was it kind of a mix of everything? Uh, a lot of it was plagiarism. <laughs> fully fucking honest but not outright plagiarism of like stealing something and putting my name on it and pretending and i wrote it it was like taking other articles that people had written and putting them in my zine without asking them that i could put it in there but still they would be credited to them but you know we're talking about making 50 copies of something and giving it away for free you know i was just trying to make a zine and getting enough material to put it together uh but it started as a one page you know just a front and a back and and then then graduated and actually folded in half and stapled but you know there was a really cool zine culture happening in south florida and in Fort Myers in particular, and there was a record store there, Offbeat Records, and it had a rack like by the front door where everyone would have their zines set there for sale or for free. And I wanted to be a part of that. And so I did it like, um, you know, anonymously at first, like just mailed them that and like didn't put my name on it or anything like that. And, uh, but, but kept going from there, but then did do some actual interviews and looking back at it right now or, or, looking back at it now it kind of blows my mind some of the cool things that i that did happen from it or the connections that i was made like i think it was the third or fourth issue i interviewed bobby seal co-founder of the black panther party this was like when the internet had just started i found his website i sent him an email he was like selling his hot sauce on the website and i was like 
I'm maybe he thought I was an actual journalist, but I was actually some fucking 15 year old kid. It was like, I want to interview you, Bobby Seale. Um, yeah. <laughs> and but but did interviewed Bobby Seale. And was it a, it was it a phone interview or was it like you you email you or mailed questions or what was it? It was an email interview. I sent yeah. him email questions and emailed them to him and he emailed them. So back. cool. So uh, cool. And then this is a fucking cool story. So I. I got really into corresponding with prisoners on death row, uh, primarily through Mumia Abu-Jamal. You know, like that was my introduction to it. But um, somehow ended up becoming pen pals with a prisoner in Pennsylvania. His name was Jimmy Dennis. And there was a campaign around him uh, to free him that he had been wrongfully convicted. And like I ended up getting in contact with the family. Um, I held a couple benefit shows in South Florida I, I'm embarrassed that they were the, what they were and like, maybe we raised a hundred bucks, you know, like we were trying, I was again, a 16 year old kid. I didn't fucking know what I was doing. I had really good intentions, but I did not know what I was doing. Um, and my mom would get so upset with me being like, what are you fucking doing? Giving out our home address to prisoners on death row in fucking Pennsylvania. But I was like, this person is fucking innocent. Mom, listen to me. He is innocent. And I was so convinced. And then I think it was three years ago. There's a huge Rolling Stone article about how Jimmy Dennis was released from prison and how he was exonerated and, and how he had been wrongfully convicted. And I had not thought about him for fucking years in between, but he was recently released from prison. Oh, oh my God. And that that was like, those two things were probably the, the most real things that happened from my zine. Um, not that I had anything in fucking, uh, you know, any hand in him actually being released. It was the people sure. who fucking actual legal work, but... Um, did you did you have any sort of like thought to maybe try to write to him or or oh or... yeah no, we 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 were pen pals me like we no wrote... I mean I mean like now that he's out I yes and no um I have thought about it because specifically like he's a musician as well and that was part of the connection back then you know sure. Um, but he's a musician now and and the article about him that was released recently was talking about how you know he was trying to get back into that now that he's out of prison. Um, and I almost wanted to be like, hey, you know, like reach out and just be like, I'm so happy for you. I'm so fucking happy for you. But it's part of me having to explain of like, hey, you may remember me as this kid that was writing back and forth with you. who You may not have gone with a kid Well, who you may not have known was a kid. Was a kid yeah. Uh, but also surprise, I'm 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 transgender. So this is the story to catch you up the seat. It's like it just seems like too aggressive to come on with too much information. <laughs> You're like he's probably kind of going through a lot right now, readjusting back to society. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'll just give you your space, and um, but I'm genuinely so happy for him. Obviously, absolutely, that's incredible. That's super cool. Um, the uh, so I, I last night I actually re-listened to. Um, the self-titled because it's on youtube of course like i i, I re-listened to the that self-titled record and <laughs> it's so i mean it's it's obviously like you know you you could tell it's it's very a very primitive version of what the band of course would become and everything like that but it's crazy listening to even that first original version of walking is still honest where it's like it's you hear that there's something there, you know, like there's like you hear the core, like as soon as that chorus comes in, you're like, this was meant, you know, like there's something that is really, truly special and happening here. Um, and, but but first, but what I was curious about is how did you get in touch with Crass Hole Records? Because I saw it's out of Baltimore. Like, how did that happen? 
Well, again, I was really into being pen pals with people. And it was through the zine initially where we're part of uh, zine culture and pen pal culture was like, you know, you'd take out advertisements in other people's zines and hope that they'd take out advertisements in yours or you'd review their thing in your zine in hopes that they'd review yours in theirs or, or you'd trade, you know, and I was really, really into what was happening in Minneapolis with the profane existence scene and the Havoc Records scene and that style of punk, which stemmed from, you know, the English peace punk scene of Crass and bands like that. Um, and th the profane existence scene somehow connected to Baltimore and that, you know, there was slug and lettuce happening as well. And there was heart attack happening and Crasshole would advertise in that. And Crasshole was a label that was affiliated with this band called Apolitical. And Apolitical's whole aesthetic was fucking ripping off Crass. And that's where the name Crasshole came from, is that, you know, they were punks and people thought they were assholes and they were into Crass. So Crasshole, um, they were Crassholes. Right. Um, but I assumed that, you know, if you look at the back of the records on for bands like uh code 13 or, or destroy or whatever like those hardcore fucking profane existence bands like they're older punks and they're like holding guns and they're fucking <laughs> way hardcore so i assumed that that's what you know apolitical as well what were as well like they're hardened anarchists hardened squatter anarchists and i'm just this fucking kid with braces in south florida and i want so desperately to be accepted by this scene because I, I feel like i could belong here so became pen pals with them and they were doing a compilation um and I submitted a song for it. And Jordan was the one who ran Crasshole. And so they put the two songs on there, which were the two first proper Against Me releases on that compilation, the Crasshole Records compilation. Uh, and then it went from there talking to do for like a split with Apolitical or whatever and doing a tour or something. And Jordan offered to have us play in Baltimore. So First, it was with Common Affliction, my, which was like my grindcore band. And the show was booked and there was the coolest flyer made for it. And then we weren't able to make it. It was such a bummer. But Against Me did make it up there. And I remember meeting Jordan for the first time where we, we literally like it was me and Kevin at the time. And it was our first tour. And we were on tour in my girlfriend Alana's van. Her, her, her van was named Ammo. And our dog was with us as well. Horrible fucking touring setup. Uh, but we picked up. <laughs> We pull up to Jordan's fucking mom's house, not in Baltimore, in Pikesville, suburban Baltimore. And we're like, wait a second. This isn't some old and hardened anarchist. <laughs> like, I remember like pulling up and seeing even his head lean down. And he's got like, you know, he's this Jewish kid with a head full of fucking white boy dreadlocks. It was insane, you know, but go into his mom's house and we're treated to Coca-Cola's and fucking Utz potato chips. And I don't know, a friendship was born and, and, um, uh, Jordan was Jordan offered to put out a record, so that was how the first twelve-inch EP happened. And is that the? I'm assuming that's the same Jordan that that uh, does that ended up doing Sabat or Sab? Is it Sab Sabat or Sabat? I've never known. It's Sabat. I, I assume it's Sabat. <laughs> okay, cool. We're on the same page. Sabat Records, because the root of it is, you know, that's what that wooden shoe is. So I don't know what the actual like Dutch pronunciation of is yeah. of it is for the shoe, uh, but it's Sabat, which was the root of the word sabotage, stemming from that workers used to take those wooden shoes and throw them into the gears of machinery to thus sabotage their fucking work. You know? Wow. Uh, <laughs> so, History lesson. Yeah. Didn't so know that's that. Where, 
Yeah, I still have my tattoo. I got my my Sabbat tattoo right there, which looks like a sun with a fucking <laughs> a smiley face with sunglasses on it. But anyway, yeah, um, I had I had a Chris Farron on here early on, and I remember asking asking Chris, and I think he was in the same boat. He's like, you know, actually, I don't think that I even know <laughs> the correct if it's if it's Sabbat or Sabbat. Um, Sabbat records, but well, Jordan moved. Like I convinced Jordan move to move down to Gainesville after the second against me tour, and that was when he switched the name from Crasshole to Sabbat sabbath because apolitical it ended so that kind of like that mm-hmm. part of his life was wrapping up sure uh yeah and then uh, so i saw that the the crime seven inch as well as the acoustic seven inch both those came out the same year if if, if that's correct seems like it is yeah probably if if not the same year within the same year technically like it could right. have been like uh 2000 and 2001 but it was still within a year's period of time or something like that for sure yeah sure and it, like it seemed like so I, I a name that i see appear in a lot of these releases is is uh rob mcgregor and like where where did rob come from and how did he become like the person to record the band like that was there a studio that was local that you would go to that he was available for or was he a friend how did that happen rob mcgregor had a studio still has a studio in Gainesville, Florida, and he recorded every band. And he was like, you know, I remember being so disappointed with that first 12 inch. Cause I had again recorded it on my same four track. Uh, but it's a sh- undeniably shittier re- sounding recording on the record than it, than the first Vivita Vis demo tape is because there was an actual mistake happened where like the way it worked was when you mixed down from a four track, you would mix down from the cassette in the four track, because it played at a different speed to another cassette player. So it had to be another stereo system that you would run your two two fucking red and yellow cables to or whatever. Um, and then you'd press record on that, press play on the four track, and it would bounce down to that. Uh, and something happened with that other cassette player where the way it recorded, there was like a gravel on top or a fucking, like maybe it was hitting it too hard that the gain was blowing it out. But I didn't listen to the master cassette because I was only listening to the headphones through the four track when bouncing it down, sent it off to Jordan. And he assumed that that was how it was meant to sound. So he go, went ahead and pressed the record. This is long before, I don't know, maybe he got a test pressing. We certainly didn't get test pressings to approve. <laughs> so the records, we just got them and we're like, holy yeah. shit, these are fucked up. This is so heartbreaking. This sounds oh, like no. shit. Even though yeah. it would have still sounded like shit, just it sounded even more like shit. But I remember then realizing like, need to do something different. And knowing that that's kind of where bands were recording at in Gainesville, like that's where Hot Water Music had recorded. That's where like all the bands on No Idea Records were recording. So Rob had a home home studio. And at the time he lived on the south side of Gainesville, kind of near the house that I lived in. And it was like, you know, the control room built in a living room and the studio was the weirdest setup. It was like an L shape, probably had originally been a patio um, or Florida room and the drums would set up in the corner and the people kind of on the two flanks where you couldn't even see each other around the corner of the room. Um, but so we booked time with him, me and Kevin, and we went in and we we recorded crime. Um, and, and that jump was like immediate, but Rob, Rob still has a studio where he moved it in Gainesville now where he actually bought two properties where it's a house that he properly lives in. And then next door was another old Gainesville house that he kind of gutted the inside of him. It has a more proper studio now, like an actual live room and a control room, but he's a true eccentric and he is, he is 
absolutely Gainesville's version of Steve Albini to, in an eerie way where like I I recorded that record I did last year with Steve Albini. And when I left the studio, Steve's studio, I was given a reference CD that I swear to God was written in the exact same handwriting that Rob wrote his reference CDs in. And no one <laughs> fucking does reference CDs anymore. People send you Dropbox links, they'll send you MP3s to listen to and everything like that, but an actual reference CD. And and like politics wise, his approach to recording, his ethics and everything like of like, this is my day rate. This is what I do. I do not produce you. I'm just an engineer. And that's what I love. Um, that's Rob. Oh, man. Uh, so I was curious. So, you know, I'd asked about like first recording experiences and I know some of so much of that was like four tracks and, and things. What was your takeaway now going to somebody and letting someone else kind of take the reins? How was that for you? It, well, what was great about Rob was that he didn't try to change anything. Right. And that like we were, he was totally fine with Kevin playing on his pickle buckets and coming in there with a drum set that had no cymbals and that I was going to play on an acoustic guitar that had a Dean Markley fucking my, like pickup in it through a PV amplifier and whatever sound we got was our sound. Like he didn't try to influence or steer any of that because I... I immediately bristled and was apprehensive the first time we went into a studio and someone took a look at our really shitty gear, even though knowing now of like, well, that person was right. They did have better <laughs> amps that we could have played on and it would have been better if we would have recorded on guitars that were able to be in tune, let alone yeah. in tune, you know? Uh, but first studio experiences where someone tried to steer me, I didn't want to do it. But I had good reasoning back then of, of knowing that, well, if we go into the studio and we record on their nice gear that is not the gear that we're normally playing on, we will never be able to recreate that sound because we don't own that gear. We're still going to come out of the studio owning our shitty amplifiers and our shitty drum sound. So it has to capture, we have to capture our own gear, you know, but um, Rob didn't try to change any of that, but it was still overwhelming and it was still like, it's just, it was not enough time to grasp what happened. You know, like the crime seven inch was recorded in a day. First studio experience, um, you know, like I didn't know what a fucking compressor was. I didn't, he was recording on ADAT tapes. I don't know what, I didn't know what ADAT tapes were. I didn't know what any of the gear was. I didn't know how to get anything at, like that sounded in my head translated. Uh, but he did an okay job of that. Like actually he did get like how it, it was supposed to sound, you know? Right. Yeah. Better, better than okay. He did a great job. So what was, so what was the change then when it came to reinventing where now there was like a fuller sound and, and, and all of that was, uh, were you playing on gear in the studio? Well, you know, we had a van accident, uh, coming back from a third tour where at this point the band had developed into a four piece, like the, the acoustic seven inch happened because Kevin quit the band, um, after the van accident. And I, I wanted to keep going, but all what Dustin was still willing to play, but you know, and Dustin and I have been playing in bands since Naples. We're living in Gainesville now. Um, so he played bass, I played acoustic guitar, and, and, and that's what we were for a second. Recorded a seven inch like that. It was enough to keep it going. Um, enters Warren um, on drums. And I know this is getting convoluted. Like James was in there too at points, but there's so yeah. much back and forth. But we had developed into a four piece, but it was really apparent with Warren right away that he could not emulate Kevin's style of playing. It's like, you know, oftentimes people will have Meg White 
or like Penny from Crass, or like those aren't good drummers, but it's like, okay, maybe like their style is rudimentary or what they're doing seems simplistic, but you cannot put the same feel in there to emulate it. You can't mm -hmm. get that same emotion out of it. That's where the actual talent lies. But Warren could not do what Kevin was doing. And Kevin's sound was integral to what Against Me was. We were this fucking band who did not have cymbals, who the drummer played on buckets and a snare and a kick. And it was acoustic guitar. And the high end of the acoustic guitar in my head a placed, replaced EQ-wise where the cymbals sit. Once you added in cymbals and a fucking acoustic guitar, all it was was that harshness. Then you absolutely needed bass. And then that led to like, well, I'll switch to guitar or an electric guitar because these things make sense. But again, limited times at the fun too, like Warren comes into the band where he's like, I have a sonar jungle kit. The snare drum is a tambourine between two drum heads. That's <laughs> going to be our sound because that's what I have. This is the way I play. You have to adapt to me. I'm the new drummer. Not that he took that hard stance, but that was the realization I had to have of like, he's not going to change. I'm going to have to change to make this work. I'm going to have to totally reapproach my songwriting style, totally reapproach the sound of the band because this is the type of drummer he is. And if I want a drummer, I have to play around him. Interesting. Um, so that was then like what influenced a lot of the sound with reinventing Axl Rose. And if you listen to the snare drum sound on reinventing Axl Rose, it's terrible. And that's what it is. It's a sonar fucking jungle kit. Um, snare drum, which is a tambourine between two fucking drum heads. Uh, and I, yeah. I hate that sound, but again, <laughs> Rob McGregor recorded that record and, um, you know, the first time we went in, Warren was super nervous, played all the songs really, really fast. We listened back, realized it was too fast. So I had to go back the second day and slowed it down a little bit. Again, recorded all the songs a second time in the second day, mixed them all in that same day. And then that was reinventing Axl Rose. So was that, that record was recorded live. Yeah. Uh, all the vocals were overdubbed, but yes. right, 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 right. Um, yeah. I mean, when that, I, I remember against me had come and played, I think in like Ventura shortly after that record had come out and I got in, I found that, you know, a friend passed me that record. I think it was like three weeks later and I had just found out that you had just played. I think it was at like maybe, oh, fuck that venue was that? anyway, um, I remember just being like, I can't believe I missed the show. I can't believe I missed the show. <laughs> and then it, then it wasn't again, because like, again, looking at, looking at the times seeing like, okay. And then yeah, uh, as eternal cowboy came out in 2003, like one year later, which is so crazy to think about. Um, and then you had come on tour and you were then supporting anti-flag. And that was when, um, I don't even remember how it happened, but I remember I reached out to someone and uh, you played that record store I was working at in Burbank, Backside. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. That, I, I don't know. If, I, it's funny. We've known each other through all different sorts of facets, but I, I don't, I, I didn't know if you remembered that aspect that that record store was where I worked and I had booked you to play and you just played by yourself. I remember the band members came, but you just played by yourself in the corner and Another small world thing is, I don't know if you know that Casey Lee from Fake Problems was at that show too, because he was living in Burbank. You know, honestly, now that you said that about you working at the record store, all of it just came back to me. And I can, I can, I can remember that day super vividly, even. Uh, I didn't remember Casey being there, but. No, because yeah. you, you wouldn't have known him yet. He was very yeah. young. He, so Casey, um, he moved from Florida to Burbank because he was pursuing acting as a young kid and he would come into the record store and 
just kind of like do laps a couple times a day. And eventually I stopped him and was like, what's your story? <laughs> you know, like I'm working 13 hours days at this record store five days a week or something. So I stopped him. I was like, what's your story? And he told me, and like, it was very clear that he, you know, wasn't in normal school. He's homeschooled and whatever. And like, didn't see, you know, not to put him on blast. Not that I don't know if he's going to listen to this. We're still pals, but like, I didn't know that he had many friends. So I kind of like took him under my wing and he became kind of a fixture in the record store. And around that time was when you played there. And that's when I know Casey first saw you play too. Wow. I had no yeah. idea. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. So it's super cool. And then when, when a uh, new wave came out, you played the record store again. And that was such a trip because then it was like, they built us the, the record company built a stage in the store. And that show was insanely sick. Yeah. I rem and I remember that day vividly too, because we had like flown from New York and it was like right in like the thick of, of the press for new wave where we were being worked into the absolute ground. And I remember showing up that day and kind of being like, well, the only way we're going to get through this and have a good time is if we pass around a bottle of whiskey. And, and it did, it actually worked where we all got kind of drunk on stage and it was, it was fun. That, that day was such a trip too, because I remember the stage being built, looking at the store being like, I can't believe this is the same store I work in. I've been working in every single day. Like it feels so different with the stage in here and like nice production and everything. And, um, all my coworkers, I mean, it was one of those record stores where like every coworker is into a different genre of music. I was, I was like me and one other guy were the only people affiliated at all with punk culture. Um, uh, so I, once kids started crowd surfing and stuff like that, I saw everyone, all the employees get really freaked out. And I had to do like that. It's going to be okay. It's going <laughs> to be okay. I promise if anything happens, I'll take responsibility for it. And, uh, yeah, it was just, it was as someone who was just on the outside and a fan of the band watching it, knowing in my heart that it went from like, just, you know, just a couple of year, years before you had come and played, you stood, uh, you stood, you know, in the corner of the store, there was probably about 35 people who came out watched you play and then it was just a couple years later that happened and it was just it was awesome to see see that was a rare day uh where at the beginning of of, of the new wave cycle of thinking like maybe this is actually going to be a hit maybe this is going to work or something you know like that was one of the times where it felt good whereas a lot of the others were really and again in the height of the like that you're a sellout fucking witch hunt shit you know right right oh yeah that's uh that was a trip. I've told this, I think I told the story to, to Dan, cause Dan, I had Dan on a couple of weeks ago uh, for his book. And, um, I remember working cause I was working at that shop and, and obviously, as you know, Burbank, all the record labels are there and right. everything. And one of the reps, cause it's, I'm, I can't remember. Xavier, Xavier Ramos, <laughs> not the <laughs> Bimon blast, but I'm going to guess that's who the rep was. No, no, no. So oh. it, it was this kid named, it was this guy named Tom. Okay. So, um, I don't know that he worked necessarily with the band, but Tom would come in all the time and try to, you know, basically just tell us about all the new releases coming out. So we'd stock them in the store, whatever. Tom came in one day and was like, uh, that band you like, I think just signed to our label. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, what band? And he was like against me. And I was like, no, they didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he was like, he's like, no, I'm, he's like, yeah, I'm pretty sure they did. And I was like, there's no fucking way they did and then and sure enough it was like two weeks later it came out and i was like huh okay well you know that's cool too like it's fine it's fine uh i, I just remember being like i was so i was just like because i believe the dvd had come out maybe like a couple months before or something i forget when that had come out but i remember looking at this man in the eye and being like you're a fucking liar 
and he just laughed it off. He's like, all right, man. All right. And, uh, and yeah. And I remember he was at that, he was at that in store and, uh, he shot me a glance and I was just like, yeah, you win. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I just realized, I mean, we've already been talking for, for a little over an hour. I, I have all these other things, but if you'd be down at some point down the line, I'd love to have you back to, to, to talk a little more into, into some of, you know, obviously you have so much more of a career post of what we talked about, but since the show is all about first experiences, I feel like we really did tackle quite a lot of them. Actually, real quick, how was your first touring experience? Did you enjoy it? Yeah. Uh, I mean, my first touring experience was absolutely life-changing. First, first couple touring experiences, I kind of, I don't know, you kind of lumped together. Uh, and, and it was nothing like what it became. <laughs> <laughs> you know like that that still the sen- sense of adventure or whatever but uh just like yeah uh i don't even know where to begin where do most people begin where do you want me to begin what do you want me to talk about oh no i mean it's it's you know it's uh it's exciting you know you you figure out some sort of mode of transportation and then you know even the bad times of those first tours like seem to feel good like if a show falls through no one's there whatever it's you know all those sorts of things is that what you experienced yeah, it, I and I mean that's what it was. It was uh, a month long tour that I booked myself through contacts that I made with my zine, or by using the other zine, book your own fucking life. Um, and those were contacts where I literally sent letters. Um, would sometimes have a phone number that I could call, uh, where it was like a tentatively agreed upon date with shady fucking details and. At the time, against me was just a two-piece, me and Kevin, and my girlfriend, Alana, had a van. Um, and so she, that's what, it was the three of us in the van with our dog, Watts. And we survived by going into fucking Burger Kings and Kentucky Fried Chickens and asking them for free food or by dumpster diving. And maybe, maybe 12 shows out of a month, like, actually happened. And there were a strange mix of open mic nights and house shows and squats. And we'd sleep at rest areas, maybe got one or two hotel rooms, sleep at people's houses. Um, Just met such a crazy cast of characters. And I'll never forget it. How how far uh, west did you go? Or was it all mostly east coast or... Columbia, Missouri was the far, furthest west we went. That was where the tour ended. It started in Florida, uh, went up the East Coast. Um, I think it was like went up the East Coast, like Florida to Georgia to Baltimore. You know, like nothing <laughs> in between. Um, but then we like played in Rochester, played in one of <laughs> maybe only three shows actually happened. No, there was more than that. Yeah, uh, sure. And then it cut across the Midwest, but ended in Columbia and, you know, played a house show in Columbia and then ended up like sleeping at that house for a week afterwards before heading back to Florida, totally broke and yeah. everyone hating each other in the van by the end of it, you know? Um, and it would not, we would have never gotten home if it weren't for the kindness of Alana paying for the gas because we weren't making any fucking money and we drove her van into the ground and I completely owe her a new van, you know, like to this day. <laughs> so it'd be great if you if you just somehow purchased the exact same model the exact same whatever and just it got delivered to to their to their doorstep be like this is you you didn't want this but i I felt i should give this to you 
Honestly, it'd be a reasonable ask because frankly, the van was a piece of shit. So it probably would have cost like 1500 bucks or something like that to find that exact van in the exact condition with the same like rusted out <laughs> floor and like, you know, running on three cylinders out of eight. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Um, well, let me hit you with the last question then that I, that I like to ask every guest, which is, do you remember the first time where you felt like you were doing the thing that you had been working so hard towards? This is tough. I struggled with this question, even knowing it in advance. Uh, it was on tour, you know, it was the, it was coming back from tour and realizing I've got to do that again, you know, for all the, like, you know, thinking back to, to that first tour is a mix of embarrassment and fun and like pride, you know, of like, that's awesome. That made it happen. Um, and those shows were so rad and fun, but it's hard to pinpoint exactly what it was about it that that was, you know, that that exactly fulfilled what I was looking for because it was the whole thing. It wasn't just like it was on stage that I had this moment where this the light hit me and I had the amplifier rung just right. And I was like, this is it. It was more of coming back and, and kind of feeling like that addictive, like this, I want more now. I have to go on tour again. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Thank you so much, Laura. I touch it, Jeremy. And that is our show. Thank you so much to Laura Jane Grace for coming on. And thank you for listening. Reminder, if you want to hear that bonus episode, hit up patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon and subscribe. Uh, three bucks will get you here to uh, be able to hear the episode. Seven, get you extra perks. And ten bucks, you can submit questions to upcoming guests and find out who is coming on before anyone else. All right. I will see you next week. Take care of yourself. Be well. Bye-bye. <laughs>